Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week, seven days into the Allied military action in Libya, Colonel Gaddafi holds on. The issue is that Gaddafi has now got his tanks inside cities, and it's just much more difficult to really stop him attacking civilians in that position. And the risk for the coalition now is that we move towards some kind of stalemate. Is Portugal about to succumb to Eurozone fever? Without a government in place that can really make the decisions on the austerity package, the people here really think this is going to take months now. The prime minister obviously has no motivation to actually request a bailout because he's running for re-election, and if he loses, might as well leave it to his successor to do the dirty work. And terrorism returns to Jerusalem. Is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict about to turn violent again? I think it's very hard to draw a direct line from you know, what we've seen in Tunisia and uh, Libya and, and Egypt and so forth with what's going on in the Palestinian territories. But there are certainly greater rumblings of discontent, greater fears of a, of a new outbreak. And everyone has the feeling that the chess pieces have started moving. First to Libya. Joining me in the studio is the FT's diplomatic editor, James Blitz. James, we're a week into this conflict now. How's it going? Well, I think uh, the coalition, Britain, France and the US, can look back over the last week and say they've achieved a number of things. First of all, they have stopped the advance of Gaddafi's tanks into Benghazi, which would have caused a massacre, quite possibly. Secondly, they've completely degraded his ability to attack incoming aircraft. And thirdly, they've set up a no-fly zone over the country, which means that he can't attack or bomb his people by air. So that's the good news for them. The bad news is they're now getting to the really difficult bit. The issue is that Gaddafi has now got his tanks, his artillery pieces, inside cities, particularly Misrata in the west of the country. And it's just much more difficult to really stop him attacking civilians in that position without causing significant civilian casualties. And that's why things have slowed down quite a lot. It's just a great deal more difficult to progress the operation against him. And the risk for the coalition now is that we move towards some kind of stalemate in which they're constantly supervising the tensions between Gaddafi and the rebels, but without anything ever really being reconciled. You think that's actually quite likely that we could be settling down for weeks, even months of this? Yes, I think it is quite likely that that happens. The reality is that the Obama administration wants to really abide by the letter of UN Security Council Resolution 1973, which says they can take all necessary measures to protect civilians who are under attack, but not go any further. In other words, they don't arm the rebels to support one side in a civil war. They don't directly target Gaddafi. They would like to see Gaddafi go. There's no question about it. That is the private view of all these leaders. It would be a great deal easier to move forward to reconciliation. But they're sticking to the protection of civilians. The trouble is, it's an ongoing, long process. Is that because they feel they didn't have a legal mandate to kill Gaddafi, or is it because they feel that if they do attempt to get rid of him in some way, they then own the outcome? I think it's both of those things. They don't have the legal mandate, and in the aftermath of Iraq, 
having an absolutely copper-bottomed UN Security Council resolution and, and sticking to the letter of it is really important, especially if you want to keep on board the Arab League countries that are participating and you want to make sure that you have Turkey's support inside NATO, which is taking over the large parts of the operation or will do from next week, such as the no-fly zone. So that is important. But there is also this other fact that in the end, this is a civil war. There is no very obvious outcome for what happens. At the end of the day, people would like to see Gaddafi go. But the rebels themselves are a pretty disorganized bunch. Nobody really quite knows who the leadership is. And so to approach this in a kind of regime change approach, saying, get rid of Gaddafi, we'll put these new people in, may be rather misguided. Okay, last thing, it does look, as, as you say, as if we're heading towards a sort of odd form of stability in which neither side wins and we're kind of stuck in there. But it seems to me that one potential way in which this could change to the detriment of the, the coalition that are intervening is our people peel off. I mean, how capable are they of sustaining a military operation if the Americans do say, OK, guys, French, British, you take over? And on the diplomatic front, there were suggestions earlier in the week that the Arabs were peeling off, that the Turks were, were rowing with the French. How stable has that been, the, the operation? Well, it's in a slightly better position now than it was earlier in the week, in as much as you've got the United Arab Emirates is now making quite a big sort of jet contribution. You've also got Qatar. So they're not peeling off at the moment. The risk is going to be, as ever with these things, that if the coalition carries out an air-to-ground operation in which you see a lot of civilian casualties or if some other thing goes wrong, then people start to say, why on earth are we doing this? Turkey in particular has been a very difficult partner for the British, French and US in terms of all the discussions over NATO running it and so on. They want the operation to be much more limited in its scope than um, the other allies do. The wider problem, I think, for this coalition, to be perfectly honest, is that Libya is not the only thing going on in that North Africa and the Middle East. That's the big worry. There's a lot of other problems. President Saleh is going down in Yemen. You've got the Syrian leadership under a, a lot of pressure for the first time. The risk, I think, for Cameron and Sarkozy in particular is that they are very committed to this Libyan operation, but people will begin to say, hang on a tick, we don't actually have that many national security interests here. We have a lot of national security interests in places like Yemen. And aren't we sort of taking our eye off the ball? I think over the next week or two, that may become one of the problems for them. James Blitz, thank you very much indeed. In Portugal, the government has fallen, a moment that many observers feel makes the long-awaited bailout of the country all but inevitable. Joining me in the studio to discuss the situation is the FT's David Oakley, specialist on capital markets, and on the line from Brussels we have our bureau chief in the Belgian capital, Peter Spiegel. Peter, is it now more or less inevitable that Portugal's going to have to have a bailout? Is that the feeling? Well, frankly, it's been inevitable for a long time. The, the, the question now is, is it going to be a little bit more messy and is it going to take a little bit longer time? And, and that seems to be the mood here, that, you know, we had an EU team sent to Lisbon a couple of weeks ago to, to sort of work on this austerity package that went badly in Lisbon. And, uh, you know, the EU had backed those measures and they really thought this was a way to sort of softly move Portugal into a bailout. But the problem is now, without a government in place that can really make the decisions on the austerity package and formally request an IMF EU bailout, you know, the people here really think this is going to take months now, that we're really not looking at anything anytime soon. The prime minister obviously has no motivation now to actually request a bailout because he's running for re-election, and if he loses, might as well leave it to his successor to do the dirty work. So that we're looking at really a couple months, maybe even into June, 
with a whole lot of political uncertainty. And is there exasperation then at the, on the on the part of other European leaders who were telling themselves that they'd sort of wrapped up the latest uh, version of the repackaging of the Eurozone, and now it looks a lot messier than that? In public, obviously, they're going to say that they're not. I mean, the, the line that everyone keeps keeps talking about in publicly is, look, both the current government that is leaving and the new likely government that is going to come in in, in June or July, both of them are in agreement on the past, that the EU has set various benchmarks that they want Portugal to achieve. Both the opposition and the governing parties agree to it, and they're going to go. It's just a matter of how they're going to get there. So the public line is, we're not worried. Both the socialists and the social democrats in Portugal agree to this. When you talk to them in private, though, there is real annoyance. I mean, there's real annoyance because if there is such agreement on this, why are we seeing the fall of the Portuguese government? It's a lot of domestic playing politics with Portuguese economy. And they really, really are kind of annoyed by that. They see some of this as political gamesmanship, both by the prime minister and by the opposition. And they're really kind of annoyed that not only does it overshadow what they're doing here, but it really threatens all the work they've been doing up to now. It really sort of destabilizes the Portugal at a really inopportune time. You know, does this lead to contagion to Spain? Does this lead to contagion to other, other countries that are in trouble? And, you know, just at a time they're trying to get their act together, They've just sort of dropped this bomb at them in an inopportune time because there is some real annoyance there behind the scenes. OK, well, you raised this uh, prospect of the dread word contagion, and I have with me our markets expert, David Oakley. David, before we get on to the C word, contagion, Peter in Brussels there was saying, well, this bailout for Portugal I- inevitable, but it could take months to put together. Will the market give them months? I don't think the market will. Portugal may be able to get through its financing um, up to the end of April, but it won't get beyond June. So if there's no negotiations, if there's not a government in place to sort out the bailout, that will be a real problem. Portugal of itself is not a problem because it's a small country. It is not, you know, it's not going to affect the Eurozone economy. But if this drags on, then it could affect Spain. Then we get onto the C word, which is the problem. And the generally accepted wisdom has been that the Eurozone can probably do one more small country bailout, Portugal, but if it gets to Spain, it's really, really a big issue. Is that that how you see it? A lot of analysts actually have worked out that the rescue funds could probably cope with the Spanish bailout. The problem is that if you do get to Spain, then, of course, markets will do what they always do. They will think, where next? then that's Italy. So it's not so much that there's not enough money to bail out Spain. It's once if we get to that point, then the crisis is getting so big and other countries could be sucked into it that then I think it's very difficult to see where this crisis is going, except for a long way down. We've already seen in the markets a big response on Portuguese bonds, higher yields. Are we seeing evidence of contagion? I mean, the Spanish, you know, the conventional wisdom changes month by month, but last month they were sort of out of the frame and everyone said, oh, they've dealt with it. Are Spanish bonds now beginning to be affected? I was talking to a trader this morning and the, the investors love Spanish bonds. They love Italian bonds. In fact, there's been more buying of Italian bonds today than German bonds. And, of course, Portugal, We've seen their cost of borrowing rise, but um, Italy and Spain are decoupled at the moment. However, markets turn very quickly, and it doesn't take too much for sentiment to cave in. However, it does seem that most big funds are quite confident that Spain and Italy will not get sucked in at this moment. However, um, it really is in the hands of the EU politicians to make sure that... um, the investors are right and that uh, it's not going to change in a few months. David Oakley and Peter Spiegel, thank you both very much.
Let's move to our final topic for today, the volatile situation in Israel following the bombing in Jerusalem on Wednesday. On the line from Jerusalem is the FT's bureau chief there, Tobias Buck. We've had this first bombing in Jerusalem for, for several years now. Is there a sense in Israel that they're in real danger of returning to a pretty violent phase of the Israel-Palestinian conflict? Well, that is certainly a major concern among policymakers here. Uh, of course, the uh, important point about the bombing that we had in, in Jerusalem, which killed one uh, British tourist, is that it comes against the backdrop of quite a sharp escalation in violence in and around the Gaza Strip, with basically both sides ratcheting up their attacks quite substantially over the past 10 days or so. So there's a sort of sense that uh, things are escalating quite sharply and that it might be difficult to get things back under control again. And there was obviously a security breach. The Israelis, you know, last time I was there, seemed pretty almost complacent. They'd bottled things up in the West Bank and that they'd got control of the threat of terrorism on buses, particularly in Jerusalem. Do they fear now that this is going to be more than a one-off? Well, it's very difficult to say anything with any sort of degree of certainty about this attack because there has not been a claim of responsibility. Now, the important thing to remember is that when and if bombing, suicide bombings, attacks and so forth have happened and have been orchestrated by one of the militant groups such as Hamas or Islamic Jihad, there's always been a claim of, of responsibility. Now, this has not been the case with the Jerusalem bus bombing. This also has not been the case with an attack on a group of uh, Jewish settlers in the West Bank quite recently, which killed five people, which makes, as I said, very difficult to say anything with any degree of certainty. But most people, I think, believe that this was then probably uh, an, the, the act of an, of an individual. So that makes it very difficult for the Israeli security apparatus to do very much about it, because obviously they're focusing on the known networks, on cells, on the militant groups that have a history of, of committing such attacks. If it's uh, a frustrated, desperate, violent individual, then it becomes much more difficult to actually defend against such attacks. More broadly, I mean, for a while, the Israelis and the Israel-Palestinian conflict appear to be almost exempt from the wave of turmoil that's spreading all around the region. Do you think that we should place this upsurge in violence in the context of the upheavals in the Middle East, or is this just a sort of coincidental continuation of an old, old story? I think certainly that the upheaval in the broader Arab world has changed the calculations, the political calculations for both Israel and for Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. And I think it's sort of hard to say exactly in, in which way. I mean, certainly from the Israeli viewpoint, um, Gaza has become more of a worry once again because they've lost, if you like, uh, their main partner in keeping a sort of lid on things in Gaza, which was, of course, the Egyptian government under Hosni Mubarak. So basically, that sort of injected a a degree of complication and fragility into a status quo that, that um, basically kept things fairly quiet for two years. I think it's very hard to draw a direct line from you know, what we've seen in, in Tunisia and uh, Libya and, and Egypt and so forth with what's going on in the Palestinian territories, but there are certainly greater rumblings of discontent, greater fears of a, of a new outbreak of an uprising or intifada in the Palestinian territories, and everyone sort of has the feeling that the chess pieces have started moving and that that has, as I said, sort of injected a degree of vulnerability and fragility into, into the status quo. So in that sense, yes, there, there is a connection between what we see in the broader Arab world and what we see in, in Israel-Palestine. Tobias, thank you very much indeed. And that's it for this week. My thanks to James Blitz and David Oakley in the studio, to Peter Spiegel in Brussels and to Tobias Buck in Jerusalem. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye.
For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.